It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The prevailing view on how we think is that we do it with words. We clarify thoughts by writing them down or hashing out ideas in conversation with others or by reading other people's words in books. But don't you ever get the sense that some concepts, some feelings, some images are beyond words? I mean, what's the point of visual art or design or classical music if they don't have meaning beyond the words we use to describe them. What are our thoughts really made of? These are heady philosophical questions, and there are centuries of thinking about thinking to draw on and chewing them over. And I hate to tell you this, but we are not going to come up with a definitive answer in the next 20 minutes of this podcast. But we are going to explore a pretty revolutionary idea that's only caught fire in the past couple years. And it has to do with space. The psychologist Barbara Tversky has a wrench to throw in the argument that language is the stuff that thoughts are made of. And in her new book, Mind in Motion, she makes the case that movement and spatial reasoning are the real keys to understanding our bodies and their actions in the world. She argues that spatial thinking is even behind language the way we tear ideas apart, feel low, or grow distant to one another. She's been researching and publishing on visual-spatial reasoning and collaborative psychology for decades, including in her lab at Stanford, where she is an emeritus professor of psychology. Barbara Tversky joins us from New York, where she is now a professor of psychology at the Teachers College of Columbia University. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So I, along with many of our listeners, I suspect, always sort of assumed that thought and language were inextricably tied up. And that definitely seems to be, I think, one of the prevailing scientific views that we hear the most about. But you contend that we can think without language and that we can think through action and with action. So can you paint a picture of what that looks like in a general sense? If we think evolutionarily, The spatial part of the brain is at least half the cortex, and it evolved long before the language part of the brain. So it seems to have formed, and there's good evidence from the brain, the foundation for abstract thought. 
if we think about some of the great scientists, Einstein comes to mind. His thinking was spatial, imagining himself going out in space and coming back. Um, that's all a kind of spatial reasoning that isn't captured easily in language. Uh, mathematicians talk about finding proofs and then in their minds, again, spatially, and then having to come up with a language to say them. If we think about how we respond to human beings, their facial expressions, their body movements, all of that comes to us very quickly without language. In fact, we don't really have the words to describe it well. We falter. Think about babies and animals. They're doing quite sophisticated thinking without any language. Think about basketball and other fast-moving sports. You really have to pay attention to what the other players are doing, what your players are doing. We understand people's intentions by the way they move their eyes and their shoulders and their hands, and we infer very quickly what they're intending to do. So if we stop and pause, there are myriad examples where we're doing spatial thinking from a what you might call body perceptual level to a high level, thinking about your, yourself going off in space and coming back. At all those levels, we're really thinking through actions in space and using those to think abstractly. What I like to say also is we move from place to place, so a place can be a dot, and the path that takes us to the next place is a relationship, a path, and the same thing happens with ideas. An idea can be a place, as it is in the hippocampus, and then there's a relation to another idea, and that relation brings us to another thought or another idea. So our thoughts form networks that go from place to place along paths, just the way our feet form networks as we go from place to place in the world. I mean, it sounds so obvious when you paint it that way, but I, I want to know how psychology got so wrapped up in the idea that thought equals language. Were there kind of two historical tracks of research? Did like the language and action people start out on the same side and then diverge? Or was language always the basis of thought? And then sort of once evidence accrued, people veered off in the other direction? I think your last hypothesis is the closest, that when we think about thinking, we articulate it in inner speech, and we explain it to each other in speech. So I, I think we confused um, language with thinking. Another thing happened about the time that I was getting into research, and that was there was a view of reducing the spatial world and thought about the spatial world to language. And people found things like the colors that are easy to recognize have short labels, and the colors that are hard to recognize have long descriptions. That turned out to be a fact about the visual system, not about language. But in the meantime, people confused it with language as if we were thinking about colors and remembering them 
as in, in a language, turning them into propositions. That is red or that is an apple. Those are minimal assertions about an object or about an action. So that view came from philosophy. It came from linguistics, a Chomskyan sort of view of language, and it, it also came from psychology. So that view took over. And at the same time, spatial thinking was sidelined as if it were something secondary and could be explained by propositions. But it, it really was ignoring a lot of phenomena like there's so much we can't describe. And we must be remembering it and, and thinking about it in some other way. So what were the major, I guess, breakthroughs in spatial thinking, in mapping, oh, there I am using a spatial metaphor, in mapping um, thinking onto this spatial reasoning system that really kick-started this area of research again? Were there like major landmark experiments? You know, I wish that the field were convinced. I'm hoping that this book <laughs> will, will help people convince people. I don't think people are convinced yet that spatial thinking is important. What went a long way was the Nobel Prize that went to the Mosers and O'Keefe for showing in the brain. Somehow, if you show something in the brain, it has more legitimacy than if you show it in behavior. And their findings showed that when rats wander in an environment, there are single cells in the hippocampus that fire when the rat is in specific places. What's also interesting about those place cells is they aren't arranged topographically. They aren't arranged the way the, the world is arranged. And that was O'Keefe and Nadell's finding. Much later, the Mosher's working in O'Keefe's lab found grid cells that are next door, one synapse away from the hippocampus, and they mapped those place cells on a map so that they are topographically arranged, things that are near in the world are near on the grid maps. So that went a long way to establishing the legitimacy of spatial reasoning, but it was still rats. So recent work in the last two, three years has shown that place cells in the hippocampus in people respond to events in time. They respond to people. They respond to ideas. And what the place cells seem to be doing is gathering information from all over the cortex and bringing it together in one neuron. So even smell in rats is brought together. So it's that function of gathering information from all over the same cortex and unifying it in a single cell. So the grid cells map conceptual relations, temporal, social, and that shows that spatial thinking is the foundation of, if not all thought, a great deal of it. But that work is new. And I don't know how much it's infiltrated. As I say, I'm hoping that this book, by bringing together the brain evidence and the behavioral evidence, will make the case for the rest of the field. Would mirror neurons sort of bridge the gap between behavioral and brain research, since those are neurons in the 
brain that influence behavior? It, mirror neurons are certainly a part of it, and you can't imagine how exciting it is to see how much of the research that goes on in our laboratories has been picked up by people. Um, so that's very exciting. So mirror neurons are, again, single neurons. They're in premotor cortex, and they fire in monkeys. When a monkey sees an action, like throwing or tearing, and when the monkey performs the same action. And work on human beings has not as much looked at single neurons, although there is some work, uh, as uh, what might be called a mirror neuron system, which can be picked up in fMRI, but it's thousands if not millions of neurons, not single ones. And again, when we observe actions in the real world, they seem to be mirrored in our motor system. One very beautiful example of that is dance. And this is a study that's been replicated that you take ballet dancers and capoeira dancers and show them films of both kinds of dance. And both of the films activate their, their motor cortices, but they're more active for the dances that they know and actually perform. So some of that it seems to be almost hardwired, some of that mirroring of action into our own bodies and our own motor systems, but some of it seems to be learned. There is a similar system discovered years and years ago for understanding speech, that when we listen to speech, it's activating the motor areas that perform speech, that makes the mouth and the tongue talk, so that some of our understanding of, of language, as it's happening, as we're listening to it, again, is reflected, mirrored in our own muscles. Wow, that's really cool. That, if anything else, seems to almost undergird that linguistic communication or thought is a part of this because it's, you know, influencing muscles and whatnot. I agree. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think these systems work really fast. And in many cases, we really have to behave quickly. If we're walking through Grand Central or some crowded space and we're, we don't want to bump into people, we have to figure out how other people are moving and and avoid them. And we need to do that quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, how does a more complex spatial mental framework organize ideas? When we think about more abstract things that are less rooted in the physical world, how do you show that spatial reasoning really is the foundation for that? So one way we've done it is some recent work in our lab using gesture. We've altogether been very interested in how we use space to communicate. One way is, of course, putting it on paper, but cheap paper is a recent invention, and we were born with our hands, and we use those to express our ideas. So one set of experiments done by my friend and colleague Bob Krauss showed that if people sit on their hands, it's harder for them to speak. They can't find words. They really need the actions of their hands in order to think. And we expanded on some of that work by putting people alone in a room. They're not talking. And they're 
studying descriptions of space that locate some six or seven landmarks in an environment like buildings in a town or locations in a spa. So they read these these descriptions, and they're going to be tested on them. They're going to have to remember all those spatial relations. And as they're reading, they begin to make a map with their hands. We don't tell them to do that. Some people don't. About 70% of them do. They make a map, and their maps are very schematic, the kind of thing you might draw on a page. So they're mostly lines for paths and points for where those locations are. And when they do that, they remember better. So if we look at the ones where they gestured and the ones where they didn't gesture spontaneously, they remember the ones where they gestured better. And if we take a new group of people and make them sit on their hands, those people perform worse. So what people are doing is encoding what they're learning in the movements of their body. They aren't looking at their hands, so it seems to be the action per se. And we know from other studies that blind children gesture, children that are born blind, And they can't know that other people are learning from their gestures or even understanding them. They're making them spontaneously. So it stands to reason that they're making the gestures because it helps them think. And I think that's part of the reason it's mysterious. The representation is in the actions of the body, not in anything that you're necessarily seeing. If you ask expert taxi drivers, as one of my colleagues did, who know the city, um, every single street in, in Pittsburgh, this is old work. If you ask them, are you visualizing a map as you drive? They say no. So it's somehow, again, embodied in their actions and not in something that they're seeing. It's spatial. Yeah, I guess... Um I wanted to ask a little bit more about maps. How have you used or seen maps sort of in your research? I mean, maps have been around for so long, and that seems to be like the ultimate translation of spatial thinking into spatial depiction. Right. And what is the oldest map keeps changing as new archaeological discoveries are made. And the current old oldest one is a stone block about two inches by one inch. And it maps an area in Spain just outside the cave where it was found. What's interesting about that map and many of the ancient maps is they're both depictive in the sense that they show the hills and even a a horned creature, but they also show the pathways. So they're showing a frontal view and they overview the pathways at the same time. And that characterizes many of the ancient maps And in my mind, makes them more useful because you can use the frontal view to orient yourself and the paths to see what you can't see. Maps schematize. Think of the London tube map, which has been a model for underground maps all over the world. It simplifies everything to lines that go parallel and perpendicular and diagonal. It doesn't necessarily represent distance well. So it's giving you the paths and the connections, but not necessarily the exact direction or distance, 
But that's what you need when you're underground. So maps serve many purposes. So you, you asked about our research. We were interested in how people remember the environments that they navigate in, and we did a whole series of experiments uh, regarding maps and productions and understandings and judgments from them. And we found that people systematically distort. So people use all these simplifying heuristics to remember distances and directions, like the hierarchical arrangement, cities are in states and states are in countries, and they use the overall directions to make inferences. So um, people think that Philadelphia is north of Rome, when actually Rome is north of Philadelphia, and it's because people seem to align the United States with Europe. And in fact, most of Europe is north of most of the United States. Well, and I think that particular example about the United States being aligned with Europe mentally, but not physically, shows too how much spatial reasoning and spatial understanding could be influenced by the mind, right? By conscious, like learned opinions. Right. And when you make a judgment about distance or direction, you're using those simplifying perceptual features. Same with North and South America. We put them one above the other, one north of the other, when actually South America is way east of most of North America. So we use those simplifying perceptual organization. We also use language. So we talk about cognitive maps as if they were cognitive collages, that we're using language, memory that something was four blocks away from something else, or that it looks this way. We're using our verbal memory, our perceptual organizing features, anything we can do. We bring it all together in a kind of collage that it might not be coherent in order to make a judgment. And I think that kind of reasoning, collage reasoning, where we bring everything we can think of that's relevant to bear and then try to figure it out, make sense out of something that isn't completely coherent, is, is the way we reason about everything. We can amalgamate all those different views that we've had and put them together into some sort of overview, a perspective. Now, that's a model for understanding other people, is taking their perspective and having empathy for other people, understanding how they see the world. Their overview might look very different from our overview of any world, not necessarily the real spatial world, but a conceptual world, a social world. Who are the people they're connected to and the people that they see as remote? And so understanding other people's perspectives and their maps of their spatial world, conceptual world, all of that is important. That goes for teams working together. It goes for negotiations about conflicts. It goes for business deals. It, just about anything that involves more than one person, even yourself, you have different perspectives in, at different times, and you may change. So I think perspective taking, which again is a spatial concept, we can map it in the grid cells of the brain, that becomes extraordinarily important for anything that we do socially.
Did you catch how even when Barbara was talking about her experiment with gestures and mapping, she herself was drawing lines and tapping on the table? Gesture really is unconscious. And there are obviously a lot of subjects we could only gesture towards in this interview. So for more on how action shapes thought, read Barbara Tversky's Mind in Motion. One thing in particular that will interest you, if you caught the interview I did with psychologist Alexander Todorov two summers ago, is how the speed with which our brains make decisions about the things that we're perceiving can make our judgments about them flat out wrong. And how sometimes our conscious mind can just step in and decide what we're going to see in total contradiction of what's actually in front of us. It's pretty wild stuff. Links to all that in the show notes as ever. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.